Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. Well, if you brought a Bible, open it up to three passages. Uh, They're all going to be conveniently located towards the back of the New Testament. We're going to look at 1 Peter. Then we're going to look at Jude. That's just before Revelation. And then we're going to look at 2 Peter as we finish up today. Uh, as you're turning there, let me make a couple of uh, mentions that I mentioned last week. Last week, I, I asked everybody who was part of the Lakeshore family here or those that are considering it uh, to make sure you're here for the next three Sundays. So this would be the first of those three. And we're finishing up this series, uh, kind of a collection of mini-studies that we've entitled, uh, I've Got Questions. And we're going to talk about that today. Then next Sunday's Father's Day. Statistically, one of the lowest attended Sundays of the year. But, uh, but we're going to turn that and go a different direction. And so dads, if you're out of town, then I get it. You know, we want you to have a fun time. But if you're in town, then be a leader of your home and say, hey, we're going to start the day off with church. And uh, I have a very special message for you. I think it's a vital message for today. And then the following Sunday is June the 25th. And I have another very special message that's been in my heart Uh, I think it's relevant for our church, but it's relevant for today. And that's going to be followed by a meeting after church on Sunday. Uh, The message in the meeting will be connected. And I'm going to talk to you about how to be part of a strategic summer prayer launch. That's just not a corporate thing. Here's something that I'm, I'm, I'm endeavoring to accomplish on that day in the message first, but also in the meeting and in the practical afterwards. I, I want to help you to know how you can begin to pray effectively. For some reason, Christians have this really interesting idea. We know prayer is important. Nobody will argue about that. But most Christians just don't pray. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? But we're going to counter a bunch of those, and we're going to see what the Bible says about this. And I'll help you uh, if you'll let If you'll let me, not only in the message, but I'll help you in the practicals of how you live it out in a corporate prayer. I'll show you how to initiate a a personal prayer in your life every day so that by by the end of the year, if you stay with it, by the end of the year, I promise you, you won't be confused about prayer. You can have a vibrant prayer life. You can sense God connecting with you during prayer. And you can begin to see and know that your prayers are making a difference. This is the way God wants us as Christians to live. Part of the reason this is important, though, is because, for me at least, uh, personally, because on the 26th, uh, I'm going to be starting a sabbatical. And some of you know are familiar with those, and some of you have been here. I don't take one every year, but I'm taking one this year. And, uh, and so there's a letter out at the welcome desk that will explain uh, what sabbaticals are, explain why I'm taking one this year. If you want to pick that up, they're provided. Anybody can. We don't want anybody to have questions like, ah, what's going on? And we want you to know what's happening. But while I'm gone on sabbatical, I, I really need some strategic prayer launch, not just for me, but for, the, for what the Lord wants to do. I'm convinced. I, I can see it. We have uh, tangibles that God is moving across all three of our campuses. We are growing, uh, some internally, others externally. Um, and we really need to be growing in prayer so that we can be ready and aligned as God moves us into what I anticipate is going to be our most fruitful season uh, where we can impact the community and impact 
uh, others' lives for the kingdom of God. All right, so I ask you to turn to three passages. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, Jude chapter 1, and for those that are tracking, Jude only has one chapter, but I'll refer to it as chapter 1 so nobody gets confused. And 2 Peter, we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 2 as we finish today. Uh, so today we're going, to, we're going to deal with the very last lesson, and uh, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to answer the question, how do we maintain our vertical love for God? That's this kind of love. How do we do that uh, while, uh, with, with, at, at the same time with a horizontal love for one another, and how do we do that while we're contending for the faith in a postmodern culture? That's kind of a complicated question because that's kind of a complicated issue. And if, you, if you're not thinking about that and you don't experience it, by the time we get done with the lesson, you'll be like, yeah, I totally get it. This is how life is playing out right now. But we're going to do that by understanding three things We're gonna, in three departments. The first thing, I, I'm going to make a case for the importance of defending the faith. And then we're going we're gonna to look at four biblical truths about this, why this is so important, and how we actually go about it. And then we're going to talk about uh, how do we do this and maintain our vertical love with a horizontal love for others. What does that priority balance look like, and how does that work? But, but it all revolves around this term called apologetics. And when I say apologetics in any setting, I know I just divide the room in three. Okay? The first part of the room says, never heard of it. Doesn't sound like something I'm interested in. Uh, I'm going to scroll Facebook while you finish your talk before church is over. Okay, but stay with me because I'm going to explain to you why apologetics is vitally important for you to understand. The second, uh, the second group is I've heard of apologetics and I've been taught that it's kind of a subset of spiritual intellectualism or religious philosophy, and I've been taught that neither of them are really necessary for my spiritual growth, and in fact, it's probably better that you stay away from that. And, uh, and by the way, I grew up in that camp uh, as a spirit-filled Christian in a Pentecostal environment. Apologetics was kind of one of those like, eh, you know, we don't, we don't do that stuff because that just gets too much in the weeds and the technicality, and that's a good way, you know, to, to visit the cemetery and, of your faith, and, you, you know, you'll die spiritually. And, and, and I, I found out later, well, there's a risk in that for sure, but, but that's really not what the Bible teaches. Here's the third group. The third group is like, yep, I've heard of apologetics too, and, uh, and I've worked past the, all of the cautions, and I know it's, it's super important. However, that third group usually feels like that apologetics is reserved for like spiritually elite people, people that are theologically, you know, special forces kind of Christians, man. They're the ones who are in the debates and ready to go to the college campuses and, you know, stand against an auditorium full of people that are yelling and screaming and protesting. And, and these are, you know, the, those are the apologists. And, and I'm not going to say that those aren't some noble, I mean, really sharp uh, uh, people for the kingdom. But we're not really talking about becoming an apologist. That's not what I'm really talking about today. But we're talking about the importance of the, the principle or the mechanics of apologetics and what that really means. And, uh, and it's really important. So I want, I want you to turn to First Peter because we're going to start off and see what the Apostle Peter says. And I, I think Peter's a great place to start because uh, if you've tracked with the disciple Peter, he was the most unapologetic guy. 
He, he was the guy that was driven by his emotions most of the time. He didn't have a clue about what he believed and why he believed it. He just knew that he was passionate about it. And he, and he was, he was going to go for it. He was on, on the move. And, and sometimes he was right, and Jesus got to commend him for it. And other times he was wrong, and Jesus had to send him to the back of the class and say, you know, cool your jets down and let me explain what's going on. But First Peter, we're talking about someone who's now a seasoned apostle, now he's got a lot of maturity. He does have some of the principles and the understanding of the word of God in him. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he says this, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for, a, for the reason that you have a hope inside of you and to do it with meekness and with fear. So there's a lot of always in there, every single time. This is what we should do. And, and when we look at that word, he said to give a defense. The word, to, uh, a defense, is all one word in the Greek. It's apologio, and it's where we get the word apologetics. We, we, we kind of transliterated it. We didn't really translate it as well. But apologetics is not, it sounded to me when I first heard the word like you're talking about making an apology. Like you're saying you're sorry for something, but it's not. It's from the word apologio, and it means to give a reasoned statement, to give a substantiated argument, or some of the newer translations say to give an answer, to give a rational response, or to give a logical explanation. So here's kind of a working definition. Apologetics means to know what you believe, to know why you believe it, and to be able to communicate that with a winsome and yet effective answer when others uh, ask or others need to know. And, and it's really, really vital and important, especially as we get into today, because if you look at how the early church was born and how they began to, to, to form, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, one of their highest priorities, they dedicated themselves to daily study of the apostles' doctrine. Now, there were other aspects well, that was like top of the list, daily study of the apostles' doctrine, but fast forward that to Western Christianity today, and Western Christianity today is to a very large degree emotionally based or experientially oriented. And there's really not enough of Bible understanding or Bible truths in most Christians' life to really even understand what they believe, much less to be able to give a defense or give a response as to why they believe it. And, and we don't have to say, you know, it's just kind of how it seems to us. There's a lot of different statistics, a lot of different uh, measurements. Here, here's one that I found, a recent Gallup poll, and this is from July of 2022. And here's some shocking statistics that came to their attention. Uh, they, they recognized a record low of 20% of Americans that believe that the Bible was actually the word of God and should be taken literally. That's a record low for our country. They also record, uh, registered a new high, and that was 29% of Americans that say the Bible's a collection of fables and legends and history and moral precepts, and it's written by man. So highly respected piece of literature, but not necessarily the word of God. And by the way, they point out in this poll, this is the first time that there's significantly more Americans, that's 9%. That's a really big jump when you're taking these kind of broad polls. 9% that view the Bible as not being divinely inspired, 
than as used to where they believe that the Bible was the little word of God. But, but holding precedent still, here's the final statistic. The largest percent of people that were taking the survey, 49% of them, rather than commit to one end of the, of the spectrum or the other, they chose the middle alternative. And the middle alternative was this, that although they believe that the Bible is inspired by God, simultaneously they believe that not all of it should be taken literally. And so they're living in this kind of like, ah, I don't know, it's not really this, but it's not really that. And they're just kind of in the middle here. And what you can conclude from that, what they concluded is that this drop in Bible confidence is completely and directly related to the result in Bible illiteracy. People don't really understand. They don't read their Bibles anymore. Not talking about going to seminary, not talking about becoming theologians, not talking about off the top of your head being able to quote chapter and verse and and just rip off scripture after scripture after scripture in in, in memory. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about with having a basic fundamental understanding of what it is you believe, why do you believe that? Not just your personal opinion or your feelings about it. Why do you believe that? Can you substantiate it categorically or specifically from the principles of the word of God? And then you're able to communicate that winsomely, graciously, in a way that people are willing to listen, almost makes them lean in. And you're willing to, to, to justify that with good substantiated answers. This is, this is what this whole, whole part means. Now, The reason it's important we look at this this morning because it really plays into what's happened in our culture. And in our culture, you find out this postmodern ideology has moved in even into the church. And with it, they brought a very high importance on what we've talked about a couple of times in this series, emotionalism. And that's a tendency to place an excess amount of value on your emotion or your experience as opposed to objective truth. I wanna qualify that. We're not just talking about living in kind of an everyday life. We're talking about what's happened in the church. We're talking about Christians willing to buy into and get excited about something they feel or something they experience, even though it's contradictory to the word of God. And, and this is prevalent in, in, in our Western Christianity. And this whole idea of being Bible illiterate and a little bit, you know, just kind of like not this, but not that. And it just plays into all this. Well, in postmodern uh, ideology, not only in the secular, but in a lot of Christendom now, it's moving in. We find out that there, there's another emphasis that kind of strengthens and safeguards that. And that is that we have to make sure that we are quarantining our emotions from anything that's negative. Anybody who wants to argue or anybody who wants to give a different opinion, boy, that is just going to mess with our freedom to understand and experience who we truly are and what we truly believe, our truth and our life. In fact, to accommodate this, the Christian side of it has even come up with what you've heard me mention repeatedly, the 11th commandment. Maybe not said like that, but the 11th commandment is thou shalt be nice. And Christians are held accountable to this. I mean, if we don't just ooze sweetness and ooze love and acceptance, no matter what's going on in front of us, then we're labeled as bigots. We're labeled as prejudiced. We're labeled as hateful. 
We're labeled as not really Christians because after all, Jesus would love and accept everybody. But the problem is that this 11th commandment, uh, thou shalt be nice, now takes precedent over all the other 10 commandments. It doesn't matter which one of those or all of them that someone's violating. The 11th commandment says you as a Christian have to just smile and accept them. You can't say anything. You can't object. You can't say, yeah, but the Bible says, well, no, see, that's hateful now. And that, that's diminishing their ability to experience the freedoms that they have to understand and explore their truths. And they will cancel you out for that. And listen to me, that's why you see this happen all the time, whether you recognize it or not. There are, there are some Christians who, when somebody does graciously, winsomely confronts sin with the objective truth of the gospel, there are Christians who will get more offended at the fact that somebody confronted sin than they are at the fact that the practice and the promotion of that sin was highly offensive to God. All of a sudden, it's like the priorities just shift. And somehow they'll, they'll create a, a, a Christian context in their mind, like if we counter something that's offensive to God, that's going to lead people into an eternity without the Lord, if we try to counter that, then somehow we're haters, and so we really need to be like Jesus and just love them and allow them to experience and explore and hopefully somehow to find the truth. But when we do that, we're countering the Great Commission. We're countering the Word of God. We're slicing straight across the grain of things that God said, I abhor those things. And we're doing it supposedly in the name of the love of God. And this is all Bible illiteracy. This is all just the, this emotionalism and we're trying to feel our way through it and we just want to have happiness and joy and, and good relationships everywhere. And yet we read a scripture last week where Jesus said, yeah, I didn't really come to put that as the priority. I came to bring a sword and to draw a very straight line and sometimes that, that's, going to, that's going to cost us something. Sometimes that's going to create tension. But ultimately, we're looking to win people's eternity. And this is, this is our assignment. There was a great article this past week in Charisma Magazine uh, by author and national syndicate radio host Michael Brown. He's, he's one of my favorites. I, I really enjoy anything that he, that he writes. I'll, I'll try to take the time to read. But this was from June the 5th, uh, 2023, and it's titled, The Human Side of LGBTQ Pride Causes Problems for Loving Christians. And let me just kind of read you a couple of portions of what he wrote. Uh, he starts off and he says, for almost 20 years now, I've been guided by this principle when it comes to LGBTQ people and issues. Reach out to the people with compassion and resist the agenda with courage. But how exactly is this done and how does it play out in terms of the people we're called to reach and the agenda we're called to resist? There are Christians who avoid the culture wars because they're too toxic fearing that any involvement with, will only turn the LGBTQ plus identified people away from the faith. Let's just love them like we love everyone else, they reason. Building relationships with them, not being offensive in our speech or conduct, leading them to Jesus. And by the way, there is much that is right in that approach. 
There's other Christians who say, but our children are being indoctrinated uh, and our most fundamental freedoms and rights undermined. How can we not speak up when our society is being destroyed on our watch and when the word of God is so clear? And by the way, there is much that's right in that approach too. Yet many people reading this article will say amen to both positions, even though on a certain level they are mutually exclusive. And therein lies the predicament. How can we love people in such a way that they recognize our love for them while we reject their personal perceptions and their most fundamental values? Well, he goes on and he says, my recent Twitter poll confirmed that 85% of those who identify as pro-LGBTQ believers feel that, uh, that there's no way that I can lovingly say, I believe homosexual practice is sinful, or I don't affirm transgender identity. Those very sentiments they believe are hateful. This is what I've sought to communicate to Christians who want to build bridges with their LGBTQ neighbors and friends. By all means, build those bridges. Get involved in people's lives in the most loving and non-condemning way that you can. All of us are lost sinners at our base, if not for God's amazing grace through Jesus. But do so remembering that as long as you state that homosexual practice is sinful, as long as you reject the validity of same-sex marriage, as long as you refuse to affirm someone's perceived gender identity, on some level, you will be judged to be a bigot, or you will be judged to be hateful. As I've often said, we need hearts of compassion and backbones of steel. So on one hand, if you cut us, we should bleed love. But on the other hand, we should not be moved. This is the holy tension in which we live, and we pray that God will give us the grace to reflect his heart and his mind in every situation. And you can feel the tension in our society. In fact, this is not in any way to, uh, to belittle or marginalize younger generations, but they've been influenced and impacted so much more. And the tension is so evident there, this postmodern conditioning to, to not gauge rightness or wrongness in any situation by the facts or the truth that are presented, but instead to gauge rightness and wrongness of a situation based on the emotions that they experience. So, so for example, for when, when something's portrayed or a story told or they're involved in something, today's emotionally driven culture and the Christians might walk away saying, wasn't that powerful? Oh my goodness, wasn't that, didn't that just stir your heart? What, wasn't that incredible? And yet a more rational Christian might be looking at it and saying, well, yeah, but did you notice that it was unreasonable? Did you notice that was irrational? It was illogical. In fact, did you notice it was heretical? It was definitely uh, directly right against the scriptures. And, and so I'm saying all this to paint the picture of where we're at because when we start talking about apologetics, defending our biblical values with right or wrong principles uh, that are based in scripture, I'm, uh, I'm just gonna say right now, is does not set well with today's culture, not just secularly, it doesn't set well with most Christians. Number one, they, they feel like, yeah, but what about the love and, and, and what about the acceptance and how are we gonna be witness if, if we're gonna you know, constantly be, be looking to defend truth and, and point out Bible objectivity? How do we do that? And by the way, even if I, I thought I should, I'm so unprepared. 
How in the world do I do that? This becomes really, really an issue here. But listen to me, don't let that issue, don't let that, that tension there move you to, away from this. Let it draw you in and see how much more necessary it is in the culture we live today. This is absolutely essential. All right, so there's my case for apologetics. Now, just stay with me, and let me give you four biblical truths about apologetics, and this may help you to begin to realize every Christian needs to lean into this. We're not asking you to be apologists. We're not asking you to be theologians, but every Christian should know what they believe on a very foundational, fundamental level, and they should uh, be, be able to explain why they believe it from a biblical principle. And they should be able to communicate that in, in ways to the best of their ability. That they are trying to, to ingratiate people, allow them to hear the truth so the Holy Spirit can work on them. This is a skill set that all of us are needing to be worked on, but it's a biblical skill set that God promised to help us with. All right, so we're in Jude chapter one. Now we're gonna move to Jude. And in the first few verses of this really short, uh, often overlooked, but power-packed book, uh, Jude's gonna answer a number of these questions uh, for us today. So I'm in Jude chapter one, the only chapter, verse number one, and it says this. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James, that's important, we'll bring that back up in just a minute, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints." Scholars look, look at the book of Jude and really first and second Peter and they see such, such a connection there. The themes are very similar in all of the books. They are encouraging uh, believers who are, are feeling the persecution, they're feeling the tension, they're, they're feeling the oppression for standing up for the truth in a culture that's really on the drift. And it's particularly, uh, it's particularly uh, easy to see when you get to 2 Peter because in, in the second letter, Peter turns his attention to, to why the culture's like that and he's pointing out that there are false teachers that are literally invading the body of Christ <clears throat> and they're perverting the truth. And this is a theme that Jude kind of really, really picks up on. And so when he says here, he says, I, I really wanted to write to you about this common salvation. In other words, I wanted to encourage you. I wanted to enrich you. I wanted to build you up. But he said, something happened and I found it necessary when I sat down to write instead to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to saints. Here's the first truth about apologetics. Apologetics is a legitimate part of the Christian life. Now, I told you to pay attention when he said Jude was the brother of James because James is the half-brother of Jesus. So he grew up in, in, in Jesus' house. Only God was Jesus' father and Joseph was James' father. So he's the half-brother of Jesus. But what's interesting is then if James is the half-brother of Jesus and Jude is the brother of James, kind of a, you know, um, uh, a mathematical equation, then we know that Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. 
And he grew up in the same house and he's saying, I really wanted to come and exhort and encourage you, but I felt like, no, I I need to instead, I need to with urgency, I need to move you to contend earnestly for the faith. And this word, this this two terms, contend earnestly, is one long compound in the Greek, but but it it comes from the word uh, to, to stand firm against something, but also the word where we get agonized. And you put those two together and it's saying, I'm going to ask you to do something that I'm going to tell you on the front side, this won't be fun. This won't be easy. This won't be quick. It's going to require you to stand your ground and refuse to compromise to the point that you're willing to endure agonizing, agonizing time periods and opposition and even persecution. You say, well, what is he asking them to contend for? He's asking them to contend for the faith, notice, which was once and for all delivered to the saint. So it's important, you see, he's not asking them to to get into some sophisticated theological argument. Not asking you to parse this or to exegete that or, or, or to, you know, talk about the interpretations and, and how they're, they're, you know, related to the dispensations. I'm not asking you to do any of that. He said, I just want you to go back to, to that, those basic elementary tenets of the faith that were once and for all laid out there. The ones that we have printed in the Bible that we can stand and depend on and say, yeah, but the Bible says, he said, I want you to go back to that. And, and that helps us to see that this whole defending the faith, uh, apologetics, is in the same arena or category as like the Great Commission. Or like we'll mention a little bit later, like Jesus brought up the first great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind, your soul and your strength. And here's the second one that goes with it, just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Those are just fundamental foundation to the Christian faith. And he's saying here in the same way, these are things about common salvation. I'm asking you to go back and understand what you believe and why you believe it when it comes to those things that were once and for all delivered to the saints, these are the basic element, fundamental things about salvation, which leads us to the second truth about apologetics. Number two, that every saint is called to apologetics. Let me kind of read you this again. I'm going to start over at verse one and we'll go a little further this time. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, again, he, he, he's talking to us, uh, a, a common Christians, Right? He's saying, um, he's saying, I'm writing to those who are called, and I want you to notice he's going to give a Trinitarian address. Now, I don't want that to sound too theological, but listen, and I'll explain it in a minute. He said, those who are called, those who are sanctified by God, the Father, and preserved by Jesus Christ. Well, elsewhere in the New Testament, when he talks about those who are called, we can draw a direct reference. He's talking about those who are called by the Holy Spirit. Those who are drawn and who moved along, Romans 8 said those who were led by the Holy Spirit into a maturing unfolding of God's plan and purpose for their life. And so he's pulling the whole Trinity in here. He's saying we're talking about people that are called by the Holy Spirit, that have been sanctified by God the Father, and that are preserved by Jesus Christ. Then he goes on and says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning the common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered, notice this, to all the saints. And so here's what's important. If we say things like apologetics or defending the faith, well, isn't that Pastor Gill's job? 
Wasn't that somebody who's on a podcast or somebody who's showing up a college campus? That's their job. Well, if we say that apologetics is only for some spiritually elite class or for those that you might think are special force Christians or spiritual intellects, if we say that's true, then we have to come back and say, oh, okay, then only the special force Christians or the spiritual intellects are called by the Holy Spirit sanctified by God the Father and preserved for Jesus Christ and have been given mercy, peace, and love to be multiplying in their life. Well, that's not true. We know that's not true. Almost every epistle of the Bible deems these kinds of of truths in us. And so we have to come back and say, no, he's being really, really clear. I'm calling every saint to come together and and to come back and understand the basic foundations so that we can defend, we can give answers for when people are confused, when some other belief system comes by, we can say, that's not true because the Bible says, and we can just explain this uh, in in, in very plain and very easy to understand uh, uh, recognition. Not only that, in 1 Peter chapter 3, it said, we, we should be ready to defend the faith for any who's willing to ask. Let me kind of help you to think about it a little differently. You know, the first person that's going to ask you to give a reason for why you believe what you believe is you. Don't you think that's true? Right? You hear something, you're like, ah, I don't know about that. What do you think? And, and someone asks you about it, ah, I don't really know. You know. I kind of think this, but I kind of think that. Well, you're required to give a reason to yourself. You know, the New Testament says that you're the bishop of your own soul. Proverbs chapter four says, you're the one in charge to monitor your heart, attend to your heart. Make sure that it's, it's receiving all those things that it needs because out of your own heart comes the issues or the driving forces that will govern your whole life. And so the first reason for apologetics is not so you can find yourself on a stage somewhere or you can be in the center of, the, you know, the center of attention in the lunchroom at work and you're, you know, you're spouting all of these truths that are undeniable. The first reason is so that you can be confident, so you can, can be assured, so you're not like, I don't really know, it's confusing. It is confusing. It's intentionally confusing out there. That's part of the enemy's strategy. But you're supposed to be leaning into the word of God and say, I don't know, what do I believe about that? And second of all, how now do I explain that to somebody else? That's the first reason. Let me tell you the second reason if you're married, because your spouse needs some help. Third reason if you have kids, because your kids are going to want to know. And all of those are your responsibility. That's your first circle of responsibility that you're held accountable to the Lord. But then we move out from there. And the Great Commission says that when we step out of our house, that we're to go into all the world. Start right where you're at. It says Jerusalem, but it's right where you're at. And then you move to the next to, you know, your circle that at work or your circle where you're at in the grocery stores. And then you move out to the next circle. And it doesn't matter how many circles you go out all the way to the end of the earth. You're responsible to be able to say, well, I don't know everything, or that's a great question. Here's what I know. Let me do a little bit of homework, and I'll come back to you. This is all of our responsibility because we're ambassadors. We're representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's number three. Apologetics comes with a divine benefit that multiplies when when we use it. Jude chapter one, verse two says, mercy, peace, and love is multiplied to you. And... um, 
And, and, and you know, some of you might look and say that, that are a little more studious and say, well, yeah, but that's just kind of a salutation. That's the opening greeting. And that was common back then in writing. Uh, you know, it's like we say, hey, dear so-and-so, hope you're doing well. So that's a throwaway statement, right? Just, just to set everything else up. But even if that were true, this one sticks out because unlike most of the common salutations in the, uh, in the epistles that use a couple or one of these particular, Jude's different because he uses all three. And he uses all three very intentionally, mercy, peace, and love, because when you understand these, you realize that all three of those are vital when you're in a situation where you're experiencing the tension of persecution or you're in, you're in an environment where truth is being skewed everywhere and it's hard to understand what's really the, the, the baseline truth. You need all of these things. Let me quickly explain. The word mercy here is the Greek word elios, and it, it, it talks about God's goodwill and his kind desire to help those that are miserable and afflicted. So it's the, the kind, compassionate heart of God. And Jude says you really need mercy, first of all, because as Christians, as a giant Christian community, they had been lax, they had not been vigilant, and they'd allow these false teachers to come in and pervert the truth. And now it was so twisted to the point they didn't even understand what was going on. And so you need to know that the mercy of God is available first because you need to repent and you need to find strength in God's mercy so that you can reestablish yourself in truth now, not allowing condemnation, uh, not allowing you know, the pressure of the situation. Oh, this is really weighty and, and I'm unprepared and I don't know how to navigate. You, you're gonna have to allow all of those things to fade to the background as the mercy and the compassion of God comes and helps you through a hard situation. You're desperate for this. Number two, it's the word peace. And that's the word irene, and it's, it's talking about a tranquility of the, of the soul. It's talking about being in the middle of chaos and confusion, but somehow you are just calm and cool as a cucumber. And in this particular context, the reason you can be that way is because you know that Christ is your Lord. You know that you're saved. You know the Bible is true, and so you're not afraid of God. Now, you're confused about how do I navigate all this stuff, but you're not afraid of God, and you're not like, you know, all of your prayers aren't directed, Lord, just get me out of this. Lord, just deliver me from it. Lord, give me a job where there's all Christians who love you and who just walk in the kumbaya presence of God all day long. You're not doing that all the time. You're recognizing, hey, I'm salt. I'm light. I'm called to be out in this crazy, chaotic environment, but I have the peace of God in me. I don't have to be caught up in the stress and caught up in all that anxiety. I know that God is with me and God can help me. And so in the middle of their spiritual chaos and the pressure and the oppression, uh, Jude declares the divine peace over them. And, and part of the reason, by, by the way, I'll just take a sidetrack. Remember, Jude is half-brother of James, so this is kind of in the family. Um, in James chapter 3, verse 18... It talks about that the fruit of righteousness produces peace. Well, Jude's dealing with a situation where the false teachers have come in and they're not teaching righteousness. And so because of that, peace is not being produced. Instead, chaos is being produced. Things just get worse and worse and worse. And because that peace is not being produced, because righteousness is not being taught, they need peace to be produced in some other supernatural way. God, until we can begin to promote and produce righteousness, which will produce peace, 
Lord, we need you to come in and supernaturally give us your peace in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the chaos. And this is exactly what Jude talks to them about. The last one is love. And as you would guess, it's the, the, the word agape. And this is a divine love that uh, it, it's a supernatural ability to continue to love and continue to give, even if your love and your giving is not responded to, if it's not appreciated, if it's not even acknowledged, if it's rejected. And that's why that, that the agape love of God is noticed that it is, a, is, is known for. It's not based on a response. It's a, it's a decision to keep on loving regardless of, your, uh, of, of, of what's going on inside of you because it's God's love. It's this resilient kind of love. And, and it's supposed to flow from the hearts of the believers. It's part of the fruit of the spirit as we're spending time with God and in his word. It just grows or it just bubbles up uh, inside of us like a spring. We don't know why we keep loving. Other people are like, why do you keep doing that? Why don't you just cut them off? Why don't you just walk away? And something inside of you is like, I don't know. Because I, I, I just believe I'm supposed to keep hanging in there because the Bible says... But, but this is the kind of love and the kind of divine, ever-flowing spring that's required if you're going to defend truth. If you're going to be in a relationship with somebody and because you're making a statement as gracious, as winsome, as, as easy to understand as it is, but you're making a statement that is going to cut across the grain of their value and their preference and that's going to label you as a hater, that's going to create this tension that may not go away for a while. And you're going to have to have the love of God that won't get, won't get frustrated, that won't get discouraged, that'll just keep bubbling up in you all the time. And here's what James just de- describes to them. He says, I am praying, I'm declaring over you that the mercy, that the, that the, uh, the love, and I'm sorry, the mercy, the peace, and the love of God would, would begin to move in your life. But here's the other term. He said that they would multiply. And this is such an important uh, word. It's actually where we get the word multiplication. No big secret there. But it means to increase exponentially. It's one thing to add something, right? One plus one, two plus one, three plus one. But you can get somewhere a lot faster if you go to your times table. If you're multiplying. And this is talking about a multiplication. And so here's what James is saying. James is saying, when you're in a tough spot, when you live in a culture that is just not open to to hear what the Bible says and not open for you to be outwardly living the life that God wants you to live, he said, when you're in that, you're going to need the grace of God. You're going to need mercy. You're going to need peace. You're going to need love. And by the way, when you step in, it's more than likely not going to make things better. It's going to make things worse, which means you're going to need a double dose of mercy, uh, mercy peace, and, and love, which means you keep walking. You're going to need that exponentially. But here's what James says. James says, if you will begin to lean in and do as graciously as you know how, understand what you believe, and be able to give an answer to people so that the Lord can help you to use you to preserve the common salvation, the traditional truths of the word of God that have been once and for all delivered to everybody. If you'll do that, there's a supernatural exponential flow that will begin to move in your life. If you don't do that, well, then the flow's not needed. There's no vacuum. You're not plugging into anything. But if you will do it, the promise is that heaven will resource you and that this will grow and multiply 
at, at whatever the point of need is, you'll always have more than you need in mercy, peace, and love to be able to, to, to face the test. Let me, let me take you back to 1 Peter uh, to look at the fourth one as we round the corner here. Now, number four, apologetics has to be motivated by and exercised in love. Sometimes people get the idea that defending the faith means you have to be rude, means you have to be kind of cutthroat. You're, you're the one looking, you know, walking around all the time just looking for a fight. You're just looking for somebody to argue with. And, and, and boy, that is just contrary to everything in the word of God. Uh, apologetics, apologists are not supposed to be troublemakers. They're actually peacemakers. But sometimes in order to make peace, they have to draw a straight line and establish truth so that we can have a baseline for a peaceful exchange and a peaceful conversation. But there's specific uh, things that show up all over these passages that help us to know how should we defend the faith. And let me just read and let uh, the Bible kind of share this with you. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse number 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind. Now listen to these. Having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. By the way, that word revile will show up again in another passage. And this just means not to insult. Don't resort to getting personal and berating people. Don't try to censor them. You know, let them talk and explain, and then you have your time. Don't try to shut them up. Don't cancel them out, and don't treat anybody abusively. He said, even when you're treated that way, don't return that. Be super super kind and courteous and loving. But on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, and you may inherit a blessing. Why? For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Listen to this. Let him seek peace and pursue it. That's a whole lesson right there. But it means you're looking for not just the right thing to say, but the most peaceful way to say it. And once you find that trail, you're like a hunter who's tracking you know, his prey. You will stay on that trail and do everything you can to preserve peace. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that's one of our highest values when we come together, that we are to do everything we can to preserve the unity of the, peace, uh, unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And yet there's people that are willing to admit, yeah, but the truth is what matters. Well, it, it does but understanding and having the discretion to know when we, when we do that and how we do it and whether we're going we're gonna, to you know, put the whole enchilada out right now or we're just going to put some bite-sized pieces and it's going to take us a little bit. All those things is what he's talking about doing here. It goes on and it says, verse number 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, he's, un- he's telling us, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to do it. Yeah, it's going to be tough. You got to hang in there though. And you got to tap into that mercy, peace, and love that's, that's multiplying because you're going to need it to be able to do this. But now he's going to talk to you about the price tag. He says, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Other translations say closer to this. Normally, if you're doing the right thing, no one's going to give you any problems. No one's going to harm you for that. They're like, well, we get it. You're just trying to be fair. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you're blessed. And don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Afraid is in the moment. Don't panic and freeze up. 
And don't be troubled. It means afterwards, don't be stressed and worried. Well, man, what what if they do this? And what if they cancel me? And what if they get on on social media? And don't, don't allow any of those things to happen. But sanctify the Lord in your hearts. We've read this. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. Other translations say with gentleness, with respect, with humility, with, with, with the ability to come together and try to pull things, pull peace into the situation. Having a good, or some translations say a clear conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who re- revile, uh, the, revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better, listen, if it's the will of God, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, that if it's the will of God is really important because if a Christian goes out there and abandons all of the safeguards, they're not motivated by, they're not exercising love, they're just trying to prove a point, and maybe they're right. Maybe the truth has been violated, and they're just going to force it and jam it in there because this is the truth. We're going to defend the truth. Well, when you get persecuted for that, that's your own fault because you didn't do it the way the Lord says to do it. You provoked the fight. You went out there just guns blazing, and the Bible says that's not what we ever do. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4 says, especially when you're functioning from or you're representing the community of believers, the church, it says there's a skill set that we are required to begin to develop, and it's learning how to speak the truth in love. Not just speaking the truth, can't compromise that, but we have to do it in love. Can't just love people and not speak the truth, but you can't speak the truth without the ability to, to come and do it the way the Bible says. That's a skill set. It's not just something that we wake up one day and we have. We learn how to do this with the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says if we do that, there will be times when it's the will of God where no matter how loving we are, no matter how winsome we are in our explanation, no matter how discreet we are in step by step by step, this thing's still going to come back and blow up in our face. And if we do that, then we come back and say, yep, but it was better that I did what God wanted me to and I shied away and ran away from this. Now, this, this leads to this last category, and I'm, and I'm going to walk through this, and it's understanding then how do we take these four things that we learned about apologetics. Number one, it, it's in a, a legitimate part of our Christian life. Number two, all of us as saints are called to defend the faith or to apologetics. Number three, apologetics comes with this divine infusion of, of mercy, peace, and love. And number four, apologetics has to be motivated by and exercised in love. When we understand all of that, then, then we come to the next hurdle. It's like, then how do we do this while we're recognizing the vertical love for God? And how do we do this in balance with the horizontal love for everybody else? And here's what I want to draw your attention to. Jesus was confronted with a similar question in Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 28 through 31. And here's what happened. He had some religious leaders that came to him and said, so we want to ask you a question, Jesus. Obviously, you, you, you understand a lot about the kingdom and you understand a lot about your father. So here's, here's the big question. What's the greatest commandment? Now, that wasn't just kind of a, a general, broad, you know, toss it out there question. There were several theological camps at the time. Some, one theological camp believed that the greatest commandment was the first commandment, thou shalt love no other gods before me, because that was the fountainhead that all the other commandments were built on. But there was another camp that argued and said, nope, it's actually the greatest commandment, is actually the fifth commandment, 
Because the fifth commandment is honor your father and mother, which is the bridge between the vertical commandment, commandments of God and the horizontal where God, God's principles meet relationships down here. And so they were arguing that the fifth commandment is actually the biggest one. And then there were a few that were arguing, nope, it's really the 10th commandment. It's kind of the one that sums everything up. Thou shalt not covet because all of the other sins stem from coveting. And so they're trying to trap Jesus, maybe not in error, but they're trying to pigeonhole him into one of these camps and they can kind of narrow him in rather than you know, him being aloof like he'd been in most everything else. And so they ask him these questions, but Jesus' response is masterful. If you understand all that context, Jesus said, well, let me think about that. He said, you know, if, if I summed up all of the vertical commandments, this is commandments one through four, he said, I could probably phrase it this way, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and the strength. That would capture all four of those top ones. And then if I look at the bottom list, the other six, he said, I could probably capture the horizontal commandments with love your neighbor, ask yourself. That would cover all of those. So if you're asking me what the greatest one is, I'm going to go with commandments one through four, closely followed by commandments six through 10. And he summed it all up by saying, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. And there's another commandment that's closely linked or follows that template, or it goes right alongside with, and that is love your neighbor just like you would love yourself. Well, it's important we see this because it goes back to then what Jude was saying when he said that you're called by the Holy Spirit, that you are sanctified by God the Father and you're preserved by the Lord Jesus Christ. See, what Jude was doing, what Jesus did, he was helping us to see this very essential alignment of the vertical love of God has to come first, because that's your supply line for all of the divine benefits to enable you then to live out the horizontal love the way you're supposed to. But the vertical love is always, always the most important. And, and the reason that that's so important because once your vertical love is in alignment, if you're confronted by a horizontal relationship that is demanding that you, that you abandon your vertical responsibility, then your response is going to be something like, well, I just want you to know that I really love you. You know that. But I realize that by, by what you're asking me to do, you're not in a right vertical relationship with God. And if I don't try to find a way to help you to understand the rightness of your vertical relationship with God the way it's supposed to be, then I'm actually guilty of idolatry. And, and let me explain why. Because I, for so many years, I would hear that. You're guilty of idolatry. I'm not... So, I'm, so because of that, I'm going to go bow down to a little idol or to an image. or That doesn't make any sense. But let me tell you why. Because when you put the benefit that you get from a horizontal relationship above the benefit that you get from a vertical relationship with God, what you're saying with your action or what you're saying with your silence is, I'm willing to offend God in order to not offend you. Because the benefit that you're giving me is more than the benefit that I'm getting from God. And when you do that or when you say that, what, what you're, in, you're, you're acting out, you're illustrating is, so the object of my top affection, or let's just say it the way the Bible says it, the object of my worship is horizontal relationship, not God. 
And when you've done that, you not only violated the first commandment, no other gods before me, in doing so, you violated all the commandments. And this is why apologetics is so vitally important. This is why we have to understand, if this is what the Bible is calling us to, then we have to make a choice and say, nope, it's tough as it is. We're going to rely on the fact that this is part of the Christian life. That, that this is something I'm called to. Maybe not to be an apologist. Maybe I'm not going to start booking you know, places and standing on stages and doing podcasts. And, but I have to at least be able to answer to myself, why do you believe what you believe? What do you believe? I have to be able to have a conversation with my own family. I have to be able to, to sit you know, with, with my colleagues and my friends and when a question comes up say, well, you know, here, here's what I know the Bible says. I have to be able to do that in, in at least a coherent manner. And hopefully a manner that's winsome, that, that's inviting enough where they're at least willing to listen. And it may not always turn out with roses and sunshine. Maybe, you know, the moment I say, well, I see it differently because the Bible says that may cancel me out and that may, you know, create a, a label that's put on me. I can't run away from that. If that's the case, I have to say, well, it's better for me to honor the vertical relationship I have with God and his word than for me to sacrifice on on an idolatrous altar because that I'm too afraid to offend you. I'm gonna do the best I can to say this in a way that you're gonna understand. I love you, I love you, I love you. But I love God and I love the word of God and I can't compromise this. We, we could go on and, and go back and read Jude again and, and keep on reading down further. We can go back to 2 Peter chapter 2, which we didn't get to. But let me just tell you what, what they're going to emphasize as I close today. They're going to emphasize that as we get into the last days, that the Bible is full of example after example after example after example. And I'm telling you, they are numerous of prophetic warnings and and. Uh, and events that happened where God was not only handling a situation, but he was handling a situation looking over his shoulder to the future and saying, you guys are watching this, right? Because this is a living illustration of what will happen if you do not stand and honor the truth, if you let this, this twisted... Uh, this twisted version of the gospel begin to create a drift, you'll find yourself on the wrong side of the equation. And he said, we cannot afford to do that. We have to honor the Lord and we have to let the Lord's word come first. So if we do that, then the Bible says you'll have mercy, you'll have peace, you'll have the love of God that will just keep flowing and in every context, God will help you just to know what to say and how to say it or to come back and say, oh, I got some homework to do. But God will always preserve you because the Bible says that God honors those who will put him and honor him first. Hope you've been blessed by God's word this morning. Stand to your feet and let me close. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of God. These have been pretty heavy topics that we're talking about, Lord. And they're not things that walk, walk away and we just feel blessed and Lord, we feel challenged and we feel sobered and we feel kind of clear eyed in the word of God. But we're asking you, Holy Spirit, to come and do what you do now and stretch our hearts, bring to us that promised mercy and that promised peace and that promised love so that we can continue to move forward. Lord, I pray that every person in here would get a revelation about the importance of knowing what they believe, of knowing why they believe it, and then being able to communicate that to their spouse, to their children, to their extended family, to those that they know that are friends, and Lord, even in a messy context, Lord, 
that you'd give them the wisdom to know how that they can begin to share the, the faith and the truth of Jesus Christ. As we do this, then confirm your word. Bring to us those multiplying blessings that you promised, and we thank you for it. Hey, before we leave today, uh, if there's anybody here that has never accepted Lord Jesus Christ, or you feel like, Pastor Gil, I'm in one of those categories. I, I, I'm a Christian, but I've just done everything I can to lean out, not to lean in, and I really need the Holy Spirit to come and to help me with this, to lean, to lean back in and to re-engage. And listen, as we begin to worship, I want you to whisper some things to the Lord, and then I'm going to encourage you, maybe even challenge you, and as worship begins to, to, uh, to conclude and you're dismissed, the altar team will come. Come on up here and let them pray with you so that you can experience a resurgence of the Holy Spirit. This is really important in today's day and age. And we want to make sure that we're walking strong and straight, not just for us, and other people that are depending on us. Someone's got to tell them the truth. And that's what God's called us. So Holy Spirit, thank you for finishing what you began in the lives of all of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.